When I was little, I was basically that one creepy kid from every horror movie ever. Now, as a little bit of background information, being sensitive to the supernatural sort of runs in my family. My father is very sensitive, as was my great-grandma Dot, before her death when I was very young, but more about that in a bit. I've seen ghosts pretty much my entire life, so they honestly don't freak me out that much. Some of my friends grew up renting out their basements to tenants, while I grew up having several ghosts freeloading in my basement rent-free. It was never really a big deal to me growing up. So the house I lived in from my birth to age nine or so wasn't really that old. My parents moved in six years or so before I was born, and there was some spiritual activity during that time too. But if I include those, this is gonna be way too long. The first story I have, I was hanging out at my grandmother's place and I was sitting on her couch, which was right across from an old chair where my grandfather loved to sit. At this point, my grandfather had passed away pretty recently, and being two years old and too young to comprehend the concept of death, I asked my grandmother where he was. Of course, trying to explain that he was dead gently to an infant, my grandmother just said, oh, he can't be with us anymore, sweetheart. Smiling, I then look at the vacant chair and point to it. I say to my grandmother, no, he's right there. This wasn't the last time I would see the ghost of my grandfather either. A few months after I freaked my grandmother the fuck out, my dad, mom, and I were all hanging in the basement when I suddenly looked toward the stairs for seemingly no reason. After a few seconds of staring, I maneuvered myself off the couch and walked toward the stairs, but stopped just before the bottom step. I simply held my arms above my head and in a small little voice said, up like I wanted someone to pick me up. When I was three or four, my mom was talking to me about the fact that someone was going to be watching me while she and my dad went out for the evening. Apparently, I asked if Grandma Dot could come over and watch me. My great-grandma Dot had been dead for a few years at this point. My mother, trying to explain this to me, replied, well, no, Grandma Dot is in heaven and she can't come to watch you. I apparently didn't really question it and the day carried on. A few hours later, when my mom came to look for me, I was in the basement. Hearing her call me, I went to the base of the stairs and my mom said, come on, we have to get going. Mom and dad are going out and you're going to the sitters. I then said again, can grandma Dot watch me? Thinking this was just a repeat of the earlier conversation, my mom tried to explain the same thing, prompting me with, where is grandma Dot? Thinking I was going to say heaven, and she was going to remind me that heaven was pretty far and we didn't exactly have the money to pay for her bus fare to have her babysit me. But instead, when my mom said, where's Grandma Dot? I looked to my right, pointed and said, well, Grandma Dot's right here. Of course, my mother didn't want to freak me out, so she just calmly said, well, tell Grandma Dot hi, but we have to go now. I praise my parents for normalizing ghosts for me, Otherwise, I would have thought I was actually insane. The last story I have from my childhood that I'm gonna tell here isn't directly related to ghosts, but it's by far the creepiest I've heard and is something straight out of The Conjuring or some shit. I was about four at the time of this story. I had fallen dead asleep and my dad had gone to check the doors and turn off all the lights in the house. 
As he was walking through the living room, he took a glance at the fish tank and noticed that there were only a few fish left in the tank, as a few had died recently. He thought to himself, as he was looking at the tank, that he should get some more fish to keep the others company. He didn't say anything out loud, he just thought it to himself. He then went into my room to do his routine checkup on me, make sure I was okay, tuck me in, etc. When he went to my room to make sure I was okay, I sat up, still dead asleep, and said to him, You can't go to the fish store, Daddy. The fish store's closed. I have a lot more childhood stories, but those are the most prominent ones. Now, I have a few stories from my young adult life as well, but for the sake of length, I'm only going to tell one. This happened two years ago in my university apartment. Now, this apartment was also super haunted. My roommate and I are cousins and are both pretty sensitive to the supernatural. We figure that there were two little spirits in that dorm room apartment, and we would hear them running along the small hallway from the kitchen to the bathroom at weird hours. And sometimes stuff would be moved. And we know that we didn't do it. But us being us, so calm around spirits, we just called them the ghost children and didn't really pay it any mind. We would just greet them when we got home from classes and tell them goodbye when we left. And that was that. However, there was one incident that really freaked me out. The night before this happened, I had a friend over and we had gone out drinking and stayed up till nearly 3 a.m., although no one had been drunk but my friend. So in the morning, when we had a 9.25 a.m. class, we were more than a little exhausted. That class was the last one that I had for a few hours, but my roommate had a class directly after, so I went back to our apartment alone. When I drowsily moved to unlock the door, I found it already unlocked. We were so exhausted, I couldn't remember if either I or my roommate had locked the door when we left, so I just kind of brushed it off. I walked into the small apartment, locked the door behind me, and went to go back to bed. I couldn't fall asleep, though, as a loud banging started on the wall that stood between my room and my roommate's, and what sounded like shuffling of papers on her desk. Thinking that there was someone in my fucking apartment, I got up and locked the door to my bedroom. Now, the doors both to my apartment itself and the rooms were electric ones, so they're pretty damn safe. I started mad texting my roommate asking what I should do because I was getting really freaked out. She suggested I call security, which I did, and they said they would be right over after they dealt with another issue they were having, which is fucking icicles, but that's another topic. I called a family friend because the banging was getting louder and I was now hearing footsteps in addition to the shuffling and banging now, and I just didn't want a panic attack. After a while of talking to her, there was a knock at my door. Emerging from the safety of my room, I answered it thinking it was security. It was my roommate. My phone hadn't been going off properly, so I hadn't been getting notifications that she was texting me, and she got worried. The crazy thing about this part of the story is when I went to let her in, the door was fucking unlocked. My roommate and I went to peer into her room and we noticed that the door to her room was nearly shut, something my roommate never does. We noped right out of there and hid in my room and locked it again. Security eventually showed and did a thorough check of the apartment. No one was in there. And when they checked the cameras that they had in the hallways of the dorms, it showed that no one other than me and my roommate had come and gone through my room. Although in my roommate's room, two of her drawers were opened or shut when they shouldn't have been and her whiteboard had fallen off the wall. 
security side of the pipes, which my roommate had heard banging quite loud sometimes at night, but I had never heard them before. And pipes don't sound like papers shuffling or footsteps. Hi, I'm Jamie Markey. And I'm Michael Tatum, and this is Cool Intentions. Ooh. <laughs> it was really good. It was very spooky. Thank you. I try to yes. I try to give a little life into my undead moaning. Yeah, no, I think it was very good. It was very good. Uh, thank, you. thank you, Eva, or Eva. Ava. I think Eva, it's Eva, Eva. For that story, uh, please continue to send in your stories. That was fantastic. Can I just say, what security staff... At what school goes, oh, you think you have an intruder? Cool. We'll be there as soon as we deal with this we other thing. We have this other thing. It is icicles. I've never heard that phrase before, but I fucking love it. I'm stealing it. It's icicles. It's fucking icicles. It's ridiculous. Yeah. It's fucking ridiculous. They're yeah. just like, no, silly girls, just yeah. hearing shit. Right. I fucking hate that. And then they get there, and instead of taking you seriously, like, are like, it's pipes. the pipes. That's the thing about women. Y'all just don't, y'all can't distinguish sound the way we men can. Right. Like, <sighs> I'm sure you thought you had locked the door when you came inside and realized it was unlocked and were concerned about it, so you made a point of locking it. But you probably didn't. And also, real talk for a second. Security's not vested because it's probably some poor schmuck's not getting paid what they're worth anyway. So That's they're true. like, eh, this is, uh, this is already above my pay grade. Right. I have to <sighs> go in the room. Uh, but anyway. So injustice is all around. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Hooray. Yeah, it's very, that was a very good story. And it was not, I'm going to say for the record, it was not selected just because her grandmother's name was Dot. I just want to. But I noticed that and I was like. I know. Oh, the I name like share it. with my my little, my pretty little baby. Now is Dot, is Dot, uh, is that a nickname for Dorothy? Or... Normally, yes. Okay. Yeah. I thought so. I wasn't sure. Not um, in Dot's situation. No, no, no. But like usually like you My know, Dot. Her she's named after Animaniacs Dot. And for the dot she has. Yeah, it's on a combination. Is it a Haggerty Dot? Haggerty Dot. Haggerty yeah. Dot. Because Genji has one. Dexter has one. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and Dot. And, has one. and Dot has one. And Gus just is a Haggerty Dot. He is just the dot. He's just <laughs> the little dot that he is Dot's dot come to life. Um but yeah so <laughs> That's a great story, though. It was Thank a great you, story. Slash Ava. Oh, such a good story. Him. Such a, it's a good slew of stories. I love. I and I, how cool is that to grow up in a family that, as 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 uh, Ava puts it, normalized the experience of ghosts so that right. you can kind of cope that support with those experiences. That is very yeah. helpful, you yeah, know. Yeah, it is. And to not have it necessarily indulged, you know, that because, you know, you sometimes you hear people that it's indulged and it's like, okay, but maybe that's just... Yeah, you know, someone... maybe go a little too far with that belief system. Maybe it... It, is, it is possible to go overboard and be like, okay, well, weird things are happening, right. but that doesn't necessarily mean that the belief we pin onto those weird happenings are true. Yeah, if someone knocks at your door and you go to your door and there's a package there, it wasn't a ghost letting you know. The, the delivery person just left. <laughs> yeah. So that's just something to keep in mind. A little bit of skepticism. Unless the goes delivery, along. unless the delivery person also was not getting paid what they're worth, and the ghost was just like, ah, you know what? She really needs I that have... pillow. I'm gonna. No lie. During Christmas, I have had a delivery person with a delivery company that shall remain nameless, only because I can't remember which one it is. Um, <laughs> they literally left four packages, and only one of them was for me. And it was like, these are the rest of them. You just take them, fuck, you fucking take them all. And so oh I went around and delivered them like Santa Claus. <laughs> and I was like, they left this package for you at my door. Everybody was really nice. And then we got to bitch about delivery for a little while, but um, but yeah, it's not a ghost. So 
not a ghost. I'm still triggered because of, of my experience the other, just, just yeah. recently with customer, customer service. Customer service, man. Yeah. Our dog has an infection in his face. It's mm-hmm. not serious, but it could, it can become serious if right. not treated like any infection. So we ordered this stuff online to help clean his face. And it was... That uh, was prescribed by the doctor. Prescribed by the doctor. And uh, the the pharmacy that comes from, they fucked up the order. They fucked up the apartment number on the address. I'm pretty sure it was all your fault, though. That's what the, well, yeah. according to them, yeah. I ordered next day service, um, but then it wasn't getting here next day. And they were like, well, because you ordered it after hours and it's not next day. And I'm like, I don't fucking know what your business hours are. As far as I know, you're a fucking 24-hour fulfillment center. Yeah. Like most every other online and service like tends to be. And they three or something. It was like, Yeah, and that? I was like, and then so I was like, well, then, because they had the Wednesday option was for delivery. Which was yeah. like, okay, well, that was the next business day. Why was that cheaper? And she's like, well, that's just not how it works. And I'm like, I just, it's fucking then it bad design. it shouldn't be a fucking option. The point should, is, I'm a customer yeah. with a sick dog trying to get a product to help said sick dog. And I get the fucking runaround from customer service who just tries, well, that's just your fault. Yeah. Sorry. Caveat emptor. Kind of bullshit. Not that she would have known what that meant. She seemed really fucking dumb. But she was also just, like, really combative. And yeah. I'm like, goddamn. Like, bear in mind that this is not me. I'm not fucking ordering... Uh, you know, a fucking throw rug. This is a yeah. pharmaceutical for my sick pet. Anyway, oh, it just drove me crazy and I'm still like so mad. I was on yeah. the phone for hours the past two days trying to fucking find the shipment because once they put the thing the thing in wrong, they messed up everything. It yeah. fucks everything up and you just have to jump through these goddamn hoops with the shipment company and the company where the product comes from and all this crap. And I was like, I, I finally just called yesterday to be like okay this is now the third person i've spoken to and i know there's nothing you could do but you can sit here and you can listen to me vent about your company yeah but you apologized about too i did i was like i'm very i'm not trying to make this personal i know you're just a person there doing your job but god damn it here's what your company's done and that person the third person i spoke to was actually very nice and understanding and was like said all the right things was like oh i am really apologize on behalf of my colleagues who ought to have known better right and now here's you know and they refunded me this and and you're like like, is that so fucking hard right how hard was that why did i have to stay on the phone over the course of six hours over two days well and i just get someone to be like we're sorry about that let's fix it yeah there's something too triggering about when you call customer service and that person is initially rude to you without any reason to be you know like like they see you as the enemy yeah and i'm like i just need information and their reply is that you're wrong and it's like i just was asking a question i don't know what is that (laughs) that's when you just kind of you know a great way to shut that shit down is to say something along the lines of, which in, in, in our case is not untrue, being like, I have been in some form of customer service for the past 27 years of my adult life, and uh, I have never, ever heard of any company talking to a customer like this, ever. Right. Like, I've worked for department stores where we would take back um, beauty product that had clearly been cleaned out of a can and replaced with mayonnaise, and we would just take it back and give them a full refund because it just fucking wasn't worth it to try to start something over that. Right. And I'm like, if that motherfucker could get away with that when I was working behind the counter at that store why the fuck can't you just tell me where my goddamn package is i can't say that though that i've worked anywhere for 27 years because then they'll be like put your mom on the phone and i'm like (laughs) i can't get gigs sounding like a woman who is over 27 it's just like period they're like you i'm sorry you don't sound like you're old enough to have three kids i'm like but i am (laughs) 
Well, not when you use that voice. Well, I start. I sound. I end up sounding like my character from Attack on Titan when I talk to customer service. When I start going, like, "Hi, how's it going?" I start my very silky, right. nice guy voice. It's my usual voice, and then and then if they start giving me like pushing back, mm -hmm. it becomes this voice. Right. It becomes like, "All right, well, let me explain to you what this looks like from my perspective, and you may want to know this from just a marketing point of view." And, and they're like, "Whoa, whoa, whoa!" And I'm like, "Yeah, bitch." Yeah, I, can I think go there. the most powerful phrase for a woman specifically. In anything uh, where it's a customer service or somebody challenging or anything is you find that mother voice inside. We all have it. Uh -huh. You find that mother voice inside of you and all you have to say is, excuse me? <laughs> yeah, excuse me. And that, it's like... It's just like you immediately go, oh, fuck. Yeah, it's like if you... And I've, I think I've talked about this before, but if you have a dog that if you're walking your dog and maybe there's a dog off of its leash that's just running around or you're walking or going on a dog and there's a dog chasing you, uh, most of the time if you stop and you shout at that dog, stop, no, and you shame, bad dog, go <laughs> no, home, go just home. no home, that whole thing. If you say no, the dog will listen because it understands that. It knows it's that a, phrase. It's a reflexive It's like, oh, you know the secret oh, word. Shit. You must you be an authority no. figure. Excuse me works the same thing on adults. Uh -huh. Mm -hmm. Oh, God, they just, oh. I said that a lot yesterday. Excuse me. Excuse me? Or yeah. I beg your pardon? Beg pardon? Beg pardon? That doesn't work the same. I think I feel like "excuse me" is the strong one, but but anyway, I guess we could talk about what our title is. Today. <laughs> I always probably do that. I'm sorry, I was triggered. Customer service. Oh. Um, so the title yeah. of today, episode fifty-one, believe it or not, fifty-one invisible high five. Uh, next week is a year, technically, of yeah. episodes. Yeah, a year's worth, certainly. Holy mother 52. of God. Gosh. Um okay, title. The muses are ghosts. Love it. What's it And from? that is from Stephen King's Bag of Bones. Which like we the saw, book Bag of Bones book or Bag like Stephen Bones. King's literal Bag of Bones? You know, with Stephen King, there's no way to tell for sure. But it's definitely from the book. Okay. Uh the entire <laughs> quote is The Muses. Oh, I got a hiccup. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> the muses are ghosts, and sometimes they come uninvited. Mm, ain't that the goddamn truth? Yes, yes. I love that. There's a there's a story of uh, singer songwriter Tom Waits. If any of our listeners know who that is, and he was being interviewed and was talking about the muse, and he's like, "Man, sometimes it just hits you. You'll be driving along on the way to get dinner mm -hmm. or something, and suddenly, boom! This idea that has to come out." And Tom Waits' first thought when that happens was, "Oh, god damn it! Can't you go bother Leonard Cohen?" <laughs> <laughs> That's good. Yeah. I like that. But yeah, so the muse, there is something kind of spooky about the creative process when you, when you stop and really think about it. Yes. Because like, if anyone's ever done anything creative, whether it's knitting or making music or writing a story, uh, there, it sometimes it feels like it's coming from somewhere else. You know, you're tapping mm -hmm. into your unconscious, what Jung would call the collective unconscious, which That's doesn't right. seem within your control. You're just the vessel. That's right. Yeah. And part of that um, applies to your story and themes around that. It does. Would you like to get into it, Michael? I would. So mine is kind of an interesting historical nugget. Uh, I just, I've wanted to do a story about this for a little while because I'm absolutely just enthralled by how this got started. But I wanted to do a bit about the beginnings of uh, what's called spirit photography. Yeah. Of course, now we live and have for a long time lived in kind of a time where it's like Pixar didn't happen. 
Right. Yeah. <laughs> but I want. I no want, matter what it is, and it's yeah, like, and it's like that's you're not entitled to those pics, motherfucker. Right. Or that's um, not a situation where pictures are taken normally. Right. But I want I want readers to to transport themselves if they can back to a time before photography uh, was a thing because mm-hmm. it's it's easy to forget how revolutionary being able to record. Uh, what our eyes see as, mm-hmm. as and, and to make as close approximation as possible because it freed up painters, for example. Abstract and more surreal uh, art forms came to, to bear on it because they no longer felt like the burden of reproducing reality was on them because now right. photography was around. So painters had to distinguish themselves from photographers by doing stuff that only painters could do. So they started getting more abstract and impressionistic and, and so on and so forth. And But photography also contributed to our image culture. We became very, we became mm. a less literate culture and far more um, image, uh, obsessed. image obsessed. Yeah. And, and imagery, that is to say photographs, became the standard for proof in all things. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it changed laws. It changed how we thought about the spiritual world. It's It changed just about every facet of life. And I wanted to talk about how at the heyday of photography, back when itself was kind of a black art because it was very weird and there was involved a lot of chemistry and darkroom tech that to a lot of people seemed kind of magical. Right. Um, I should start this also by saying that I dated someone for a long time who was obsessed and very good at wet plate photography, the original uh, Calidian glass plate process, right. which looks like fucking magic. If you knew nothing about it, you watch this happen and you're like, how the fuck did you do that? It's a wooden box (laughs) that you just took the cap off, took the cap back on. I stood there and you asked me not to blink for a few moments and then you turned off the lights and turned on a red one and then you took this glass plate out of the back of this fucking box and you poured some shit on it and then there there I am. Yeah. How the fuck? They're the coolest looking pictures too. They really are. Um, So I want to talk about the beginnings of spirit photography and just in general what happened um, because this is a fascinating story. Okay. So it starts with, well... Let me just go. We're going to kind of jump timelines a lot in this story because it's just there's too complicated to, to okay. get into. Um, but let's just begin with saying when he died in 1896, colleagues eulogized photographer James Wallace Black as, quote, an authority on the science and chemistry of his profession. Uh, he was a concise, logical man with an adventurer's soul and is best remembered today uh, for pioneering the aerial shot. Okay. In fact, in October of 1860, taking flight from the Boston Commons in a hot air balloon christened the Queen of the Air, piloted by uh, New England's preeminent aerialist Samuel Archer King, James Wallace Black captured the city's haphazard sprawl in dizzying detail. The resulting prints did for city dwellers what Copernicus did for 16th century pedagogues who believed the sun revolved around the earth. This is the first time that people saw like what Boston looked like from above. And some mm-hmm. people found it very humbling. They're like, you know, this city is the center of our world, but you look and like one critic says like, yep, see, proves that this city just looks like a fucking pasture, <laughs> cattle pasture, you know, it looks like right. a pen. Well, and um, it, it, I mean, the, I think the parallel of that is when people first see those satellite images where it'll zoom out of Earth and yeah. then it zooms out even farther and farther and farther. I guess they're more than satellite. It's just a perspective. Yeah. It's like the um, beginning of contact. Right. And it shows like how small we really are is, yeah. you know. And there so, was no concept of that before. None, none yeah. at all, you know. And so 
uh, James Wallace Black was the first photographer to be like, let's let's lug this equipment up there and let's take some shots. I want people to see what this is like. Um, so a little more about James Wallace Black. Laying aside his aspirations to be a painter at a young age, Black got his start in the emerging discipline of photography by first polishing daguerreotypes, which were kind of the early form of uh, what the Collidian wet, place, uh, wet plate photography process produced. Um, he later partnered with inventor photographer John Whipple to start a photography business. Black indeed seemed destined to make history in the field. His wet plate photograph of abolitionist John Brown, taken not long after the infamous Harper's Ferry insurrection, still hangs in the Smithsonian. Uh, for those of you that don't know anything about that, quick side note, historical um, attempting to ignite a nationwide slave uprising, Brown and a guerrilla force of 22 men he'd gone around the country raising, uh, including three of his own sons, launched an unsuccessful raid on a federal armory in Harper's Ferry, what's now West Virginia. His subsequent arrest and execution solidified Brown as a martyr to the abolitionist cause and ultimately made the Civil War an inevitability. Mm -hmm. um, and Black's photo of him is the only known photo of him, and it hangs in the Smithsonian. Okay. Uh, Black's photograph of poet Walt Whitman uh, was used to promote the 1860 edition of Leaves of Grass. So this guy has mm. quite a pedigree as a photographer. Right. Now, from the revolutionary aerial shots of his hometown titled Boston as the Eagle and the Wild Goose See It, to his later <laughs> obsession with magic lanterns, the forerunner of the slide projector, James Wallace Black always looked ahead, always saw the big picture. Uh, equal parts artist and scientist, he was a very worldly man, and presumably there was a little room in that world for ghosts. Imagine his shock at seeing, in a rare photograph of himself, developing in real time, right before his very eyes, the translucent image of his long-dead father. Ooh. The man responsible for this photograph, William H. Mulmer, won a name for himself offering similar photographs to a clientele eager to know their departed loved ones hadn't entirely abandoned earthly conceits. In the decades spent building up his singular business, uh, Mulmer earned quite a reputation among believers. Before catapulting to fame as a kind of photographer slash medium, Mulmer made his living as a jewelry engraver. His interest in photography was that of a passionate amateur, like many such enthusiasts of the day. He familiarized himself with cutting-edge equipment and the frequently dangerous chemicals used in the development process. Around the time James Wallace Black was taking to the skies over Boston, Mulmer was teasing out a self-portrait in his homemade darkroom when, much to his surprise, an anomaly began to form on the glass plate. No doubt he'd failed to reapply the cap properly, or had bungled the silver bath, or any one of the several thorny incremental steps between exposure and final image. Slowly, however, the amorphous blob proved to be something altogether more profound. The face of a cousin who'd been dead for 12 years, hovering over him. Oh no! This was Mulmer's road to Damascus moment. Yeah. Convinced he'd somehow stumbled upon a way to capture the image of spirits, he put down his burin, the preferred tool of engravers, uh, and set up shop as a full-time, quote, spirit photographer. His wife, Hannah, offered her services as a more traditional medium, pouring tea for the grieving sitter and channeling words of comfort from the deceased. Between her and her husband, theirs was a business model all but guaranteeing success. Now, two major historical factors underwrote that guarantee, the rise of spiritualism and the Civil War. 
Mm. Few and far between were the lucky souls who hadn't lost someone to the bloodiest conflict ever waged on American soil. The public, still reeling from the fallout, not to mention the devastating economic realities that followed, was starved for spiritual consolation and sought it wherever they could. Now, spiritualism, itself the esoteric belief that souls linger between planes of existence after death and can communicate with the living, got its start two decades earlier when a trio of sisters from upstate New York gained notoriety for some pretty extraordinary claims. On March 31st, 1848, Kate, Margaret, and Leah Fox from Hydesville told reporters they'd made contact with the spirit of a murder victim a traveling peddler whose body had been discovered in their home some years before. The spirit, they said, answered questions by giving a predetermined number of knocks on the kitchen table. Scores of witnesses attested to the phenomenon's veracity. Practical-minded folk were impressed. The evidence of one's senses couldn't be denied. In the spring of that year, several Quaker relatives from Rochester took the girls in, becoming the first full-fledged converts to the implications of their ability to talk to spirits. Now, incidentally, spiritualism's earliest adherents were, you might be surprised to find out, radical Quakers tied mm. to the mid-19th century reform movement, which sought to align the church with abolition and campaign for the advancement of women's rights. Well, can go then. Yeah. Well, also you think, you know, one of the original Quaker founders is the one that's had that vision on top of Pendle Hill. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So they started with visions. They started with a supernatural element. Right. I mean, I guess all religions kind of do, but still. Yeah, but this was the kind of the more recent one that was like yeah. this is thing. And they so spirits were very much and and depending on what denomination you were, people had different beliefs in terms of spirits. Catholics at the time at least tended to believe that spirits were not the souls of the departed. Those were either in purgatory hell or or heaven. Right. Which I mean is um, already and they thought spirits were a different form, usually malign, and that would take on the form of a loved one to kind of gain access into one yeah. into Which has into shifted because it seems more that that's more of a Protestant thing and yes. Catholicism is more because I mean it's different planes of existence right and so purgatory is one of those planes so if you know like when we've talked about this before someone could be get allowed to ask for help if they're in purgatory to get right. out of it so yes. you could pray for them you could right yeah and well and also too there was a there was a the prevailing belief before protestantism uh, protestantism really split off in uh you know say the 15th uh, century, excuse me, 16th century or thereabouts, was that uh, spirits were either... Martin Luther! Right. The spirits were either some malign force that were simply taking the image that were appearing to people as uh, departed loved ones, but weren't really their souls, mm -hmm. or they were the souls of dead one, of uh, loved ones who were in purgatory. And, right. and, and like you said, they were able to come back and ask for help or, or yeah. do some good deed. So there was all sorts of different, you know, like, what are these things? Are they really the souls of, now we kind of take it for granted that, that souls are, you know, the, 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 that spirits, ghosts are the departed souls of people that we knew or right. of someone that was murdered there or whatever. But we all know that woman. We all know that woman who everything is a is demon. Is a demon. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and that's a very old belief. Yeah, it's um, a demon. It's a demon. So I just think it's interesting that spiritualism was a very radical thing in its own right, because within its, it, it's not that every every denomination of Christianity uh, had some philosophy with regards to spirits, but the radical Quakers were like, we think they're the souls of the departed mm -hmm. who are still around to do things and that we can help them uh, and they can help us. So they were kind of like, they were very inclusive. So, uh, it, so nice. they were like, just because they're dead doesn't mean we should discriminate against them, which I think is very progressive. That's very progressive. And it made it kind of interesting that, so of course they were also abolitionists. Mm -hmm. You know, uh, that seems kind of a natural outcropping of this belief that we're all bound, we're all together in this. And they also wanted, uh, you know, women's lib and also 
so it also attracted a lot of socialists. So mm -hmm. you had people like um, uh, 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 Helen Keller, who oh, right. was a major socialist. People don't know that because they just remember her from just, oh, she's a blind woman that also was deaf and, and yeah. couldn't talk, whatever. But she was also a major uh, force in the socialist movement in the in the early part of the 20th century. And... Uh, Anyway, but it's so they cross pollinated a lot. Yeah. And so spiritualism became a movement of kind of the progressive, you know, what we would call the progressive left now. Mm -hmm. And uh, a lot of those people were confirmed occultists. They were yeah. like, this is, they had very, very progressive views. Um, now, so this is, uh, uh, so the Vox sisters became the most celebrated mediums of their day, as we know, and they performed seances in private parlors and sold out auditoriums all across the country, making a mint. Now, much later in 1888, the sisters confessed to faking their otherworldly communiques. Right. Margaret, the youngest, insisted she produced the phenomenon for which they were famous by just surreptitiously cracking a joint in her toe, giving the illusion of someone or something knocking on the table. She demonstrated this ability in public, breaking the hearts of many true believers. But less than a year later, the sisters recanted their confession. So there's an argument that... that Margaret was telling the truth, and later they thought, oh, it's done so much damage to the spiritualist movement, which mm -hmm. has so many good political uh, um, agendas uh, on its heart that maybe we should maybe not do that. But there's another school of thought that's like, well, maybe Margaret was kind of mad at her other sisters kind of stealing the fame and spotlight, so she decided to be like, we faked it, fuck them. And then later came forward after they reconciled, but like, no, I, I, I was faking the faking. <laughs> right. So we don't we don't know. I it's, feel, still, it's still a kind of loose end. I feel as though... Um, what probably has happened to a lot of people who become in, who get in the public eye because of their mediumship mm -hmm. abilities is they're in even like the the ghost hunting television shows it starts genuine it starts as something really yeah, happening and then but eventually then you have to fake it just to keep up with the to, broadcast to, deadlines yes, <laughs> yeah well to maintain that expectation yeah. to keep people from saying it was fake the whole time you have to you have to come up with something mm -hmm, to mm -hmm. keep people watching and keep people paying attention. And yeah. so that could have been the reality. That could that. very, very much so, especially because I think these girls, you know, when they were young and this was happening, I think they never anticipated, they couldn't have anticipated this would become a thing. No. Because it's not like there was any precedent for it. Right. Um, so it's, it's kind very... of how we, you know, when we hear of stories that come out of the 70s a lot of the times you've got to look if it was before or after amityville and before yeah. or after poltergeist because mm -hmm. a lot those movies influenced the you know yeah. it, they yeah. had such huge societal impacts huge. on the way people looked at those kinds of hauntings the way people accepted that things were demons all the time demons 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 mm -hmm. so you know that kind of social influence is a huge deal and at the time yes that you know um was spirituality was a big thing, but people had not done those types of things before. And the mediums, right. what happened with mediums and that kind of thing was very private. People, it wasn't as mm -hmm. known what happened inside each of yeah. those moments. So, well, because I guess the medium had uh, sort of the 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 intimacy of a therapist. Yeah, you know, where it's like this is your client, and what's mm -hmm. what's what happens here stays here. Because I mean, obviously, it's a highly sensitive exchange. So. Uh, it, it's I'm just fascinated by like no matter any way you slice it there's always two at least two ways mm -hmm. to interpret um, this kind of phenomenon so even though that the, the sisters recanted their confession in 1889 uh, by then the damage was done the trappings of spiritualism became deeply suspect in the public's mind didn't die out 
completely. It still mm-hmm. survived for another couple of decades in one form or fashion. Sir Arthur Conan Doyle, as you know, was was a big proponent of it. Um, but uh, but of course, the Fox sisters died in abject poverty within a few years of each other, not long mm-hmm. after this. But but they anyway. stayed. I mean, they kept that it was true until they died after after the recantation. Yeah, they they stuck with their their recanting. Yeah. Uh, but again, it's unclear whether. Margaret said where Margaret was telling the truth when she said we faked it the whole time and they simply walked it back when they realized the political ramifications it had mm-hmm. because suddenly you know the spiritualist movement which had which it had ties to abolition and everything else and and uh, you know were was now suffering from it and they realized oh fuck I didn't mean that so maybe they walked back who knows yeah um, no or like you said where it's like well we faked a little bit of it right because we but had that's to because, because you had, had so many demands because we had we were touring yeah. <laughs> and the ghosts aren't that reliable but anyway let's go back to 18 to the 1860s okay right now in temperament james wallace black uh, and william h mulmer couldn't have been further apart black was a visionary constantly pushing the envelope of his craft mulmer was more pragmatic at least in his younger years unconcerned with expanding the technology beyond the needs of his balance sheet he was content with being a portrait photographer albeit a highly niche one and yet the respective ouvres of both <laughs> men represented a challenge to the status quo in their hands a nascent technology offered a glimpse into the unseen a glimpse whose ramifications were epoch making now, of the many spirit photos produced by Malmer, two in particular cement his enduring fame, both taken when his practice was on the decline. One showcases a vaporous Abraham Lincoln standing over the seated form of his widow, Mary Todd. The distraught former first lady was said to be terribly impressed with her session. Her gossipy retinue spread the word that Mulmer was indeed the real deal. The second photo... She was really big into the spiritual. She really was. Uh, The second photo shows a young medium from Bridgewater, Massachusetts, known as Master Herod, surrounded by his own retinue, a veritable smorgasbord of spirits from all around the world. But as I said, these photos came late in the spirit photography phase that Mulmer went through. More than likely, they were a publicity stunt meant to salvage what was left of his professional standing after he was accused of fraud by the grandfather of Humbug himself, P.T. Barnum. Ah. But I'm getting ahead of myself again. A few years after soaring above Boston with his camera in the Queen of the Air, James Wallace Black caught wind of Mulmer's operation and arranged to have an assistant scrutinize his methods in good faith. The assistant returned from Mulmer's studio just a few blocks away and, out of breath and pale, insisted Mulmer had taken a picture of him and developed it, and in it, a dead relative appeared. Mm. And this assistant, this kid was like, there's no way that this, I don't, you know, there's no way that he could have done this. There's none. I saw no evidence of double exposure. I was there the whole time. Well, and also, how does he know what his dead relative looks like if he was going to do something like exactly. that? Exactly. Now, do you so, have any of these pictures? Uh, oh, there's quite a few of them. Oh. Uh, quite a well, few. We'll you can on go online Instagram. and look up Mulmer, and there's there's a bunch yeah. of them. So well, yeah, yeah, definitely put we'll, yeah. Uh, the two I just mentioned of Master Herod and Mary Todd uh, Lincoln. We'll we'll definitely put up. Okay. Um. So, so Black listened to his assistant and was like, "All right, you're a kid. You're not as experienced in the chemistry and, and the process as I am. So I'll I'll go to Mulmer and I'll sit for him." myself. And and Mulmer's thinking was like, I got to take matters into my own hands because if a self-confessed neophyte in matters of photography like Mulmer was, because Mulmer was like, you know, I'm not, I'm not the genius that other photographers are. I just like taking pictures of people. And this happens to be a weird byproduct of people sitting for me. I must have some sort of ability, but I don't know how it happens. Um, But that, that was what he said. But if, if he was really a charlatan, 
despite being a complete neophyte in matters of photography, Malmer was like, this guy stumbled on something that's able to fool professionals. Right. So he has to know what it was. He had yeah. to know. I want to fool so, professionals. So, How'd yeah. you do it? <laughs> so Black arranged. So Malmer invited him to sit for a photo and afterwards observe his darkroom techniques. He even offered to let Black develop the plates himself. Unfamiliar with the chemical ratios Mulmer used, and this was back in the day where every every photographer had their own kind of system. Right. Black declined, insisting he didn't want to muddy the man's system. He convinced uh, he was convinced the deception lay somehow in the plates themselves, not in the darkroom process per se. No way he thought could Mulmer trade out the plates by sleight of hand or pull a double exposure under the watchful eye of a better. And yet, and yet, mm-hmm. there, right in front of him, as the plate developed was the face of Black's dead father staring back at him from a photo taken not minutes before. As Mulmer would later recall the encounter, quote, another form became apparent, growing plainer and plainer each moment until a man appeared, leaning his arm upon Mr. Black's shoulder, end quote. Black watched with wonder-stricken eyes. This was his father, the man whose sudden death when Black was a child set him on the path to become the very thing that brought him to Mulmer's studio in the first place. An intrepid seeker of truth, a man willing to ascend in a hot air balloon to capture images never before seen by the vast majority of human eyes. He hadn't been especially moved when his assistant reported seeing a dead relative materialize in the photo Mulmer took of him. Black was a man of science devoted to experiment and what could be verified by the five senses. But the figure over his shoulder in the photograph he stood at, he looked at now turned his world upside down. He left virtually speechless, stopping only long enough to ask Mulmer if he could buy the photo. Mulmer, smiling, charged his esteemed colleague not one cent. That's great. You know, and the thing to keep in mind um, for some, of, perhaps some of our younger listeners is that at the time, there would not have been a photo of because they talk about dog, double exposure a lot or faking photos. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Photos certainly could have been faked, right, you know, back then, but there was not a public photo of his father. There would not have been a photo of him leaning on somebody so that he could superimpose that. That would not have been a thing. It's not like he could go to the internet and Google search a name and just put that face in there, you know? Yeah, exactly, exactly. It it was was, the links he would have had to go through. Yeah. um, And the... the, uh, the willingness of belief on the part of his clientele he would have to rely on to get away with what mm-hmm. he was described as getting away with was pretty amazing. Now, we're not we're not done with that yet. Um, because like the Fox sisters, he may have had to supplement his right. real talents with some fakery every yeah, now and but again. With, like, with Lincoln, there would have been public photos of him. I mean, yes, the re- photos of Lincoln is part of why he was, he won. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. So. He was one of the first, like, frequently photographed um, man, not a, not an attractive man either. Uh, he knew it, but and my that's home, why he grew that beard. And he how things changed by the time chin. you got to Kennedy. Uh huh. You know, be, who also won because of film. Really he won funny. because There's of a, film. With Gore all those... Vidal, uh, the famous gay writer who's who wrote a number of books on American politics, um, was hanging out with Tennessee Williams and uh, with Robert Kennedy. Or excuse me, with uh, Jack kennedy jfk when he was young when he was just a senator mm-hmm. and uh <laughs> tennessee williams this is just has nothing to do with the story but it just made me think of it like at some point um after they were done i guess they were skeet shooting and when they were done like kennedy went off and like you know tennessee williams turned to Gor- Gorvidal and was like asking like who's the hottie and Gorvidal was like you cannot cruise the possible future president of the united states tennessee and he's yeah. like oh he's not gonna be 
president. He's too attractive. Um, <laughs> anyway, so um, L.H. Hale, a photographer every bit as established as Wallace Black, was equally perplexed. Attempting to recreate the phenomenon for an expose in the spiritualist newsletter Banner of Light, Hale maintained he could only approximate the effect of pr by printing one image on top of another, a lengthy process impossible to pull off undetected in the presence of a seasoned photographer. Right. Yet for all this, a growing number of skeptics still called shenanigans. They claimed sleight of hand, they claimed double exposure, they claimed Mulmer hired actors to pose as ghosts. Worse, that he broke into homes to steal family photos from prospective clients. A slew of investigators walked away from Mulmer's studio empty-handed in their search for chicanery, which only emboldened him. I love him. that you used chicanery. Of course I did, it's mm. me. He expanded his business to include a mail order service. For $7.50, you all, you all you had to do was send a description of the spirit you'd like to see. <laughs> and, and voila, a few, few weeks later, maybe a month or so later, depending on the postal system, uh, you'd get a photograph. Um, wow. So that, that seems that a little, seems a little dodgy. Pushment, yeah. Um, writing mail order is like... Eh. <laughs> right, right. Um, writing for the New Yorker, a guy named Dan uh, Pippenbring puts it very beautifully, I think. He says, quote, photography in the 19th century was a competitive line, and Mulmer's colleagues were deeply suspicious of him. The art, after all, was furtive and alchemical enough in its honest form. Uh, Manceau, in his book, The Apparitionist, where a lot of this comes from, and I highly recommend it, writes that the wet plate uh, collidian process favored at the time had the air of conjuration about it, involving harsh chemicals, glass plates, and plenty of time in the dark. With their stained fingers, photographers were said to, to practice the black art, a term that resonated with occult implications. If Mulmer was pushing the medium into overt metaphysics, his colleagues wanted to know how or to reveal him as a swindler. The spirit photographer seemed above the reach of skeptics until a random visitor to Mulmer's gallery spotted a woman among the featured ghosts whom he knew to be very much alive, his own wife. Mm. P.T. Barnum, self-appointed crown prince of flim-flam and a distinctly American institution unto himself, made a similar discovery pouring over Mulmer's portfolio. He recognized several of the supposed ghosts as citizens of Boston, also still very much among the living. The net was slowly closing in. Before all was said and done, Mulmer's uh, standing among believers couldn't spare the world's foremost spirit photographer from the long arm of the law. Accused of fraud and larceny, Mulmer was summarily arrested in 1869 and thrown into New York's most unforgiving prison, The Tombs. Oh. The ensuing trial lasted three weeks and grabbed headlines worldwide. Indeed, it seemed the very soul of the spiritualist movement was forced to throw itself upon the mercy of the court. Dozens and dozens of witnesses took the stand, either singing Mulmer's praises or vehemently dismissing him as a con. Yet, for all their fiery rhetoric, the prosecution failed to reproduce Mulmer's ghosts, despite calling several well-heeled photography experts to the stand. P.T. Bar uh, Barnum, impresario that he was, maintained under oath he knew a con artist when he saw one. After all, <laughs> he, he made a good one. living on the, on the credulity of his public, the difference being he informed paying customers of the ruse beforehand. Among those for the defense, respected businessman Charles Livermore testified that his uh, testified that Mulmer had captured incontrovertible proof of his deceased wife's survival after death. The arguments on both sides were heated, emotional, and amounted to this. Mulmer was either a, quote, magical realist with a camera or a flagrant forger. And this, I mean, this was emotional. People yeah. were getting up there and like someone who, who had sat for Mulmer and had seen a loved one appear in the mm -hmm. photograph afterwards, uh, you know, would have this, 
you know, like I saw it with my own eyes, you know, right. I talked to him after, you know, whatever. And the prosecution's job would be like, are you sure? Are you sure? Are you sure you just weren't full of shit? You know, are you sure you weren't you seeing what you wanted to see? I mean, so this, they were really, I mean, the prosecution was going so far as to just attack the very notion of belief, right. but they could not reproduce. They could not figure out how Mulmer made these images. And I will tell you, looking at the images, some of which we'll put up on the website, it, it is kind of hard to see how anyone could look at that and be like, that's clearly a fake. But I also hasten to remind uh, our listeners, and I have to frequently remind myself, this was a different time where looking at a photograph was a completely new thing. Right. And and so it's not that it was made it easier to fake. It's just that what we see now or what we what passes for real now to us in in an image is so dependent on things that aren't real right. like you know yeah. i mean look at look at the standard of of um you know, look at how i mean i i am not aware of the extent to which we can digitally manipulate an image i am nowhere near an expert few people are yeah. and yet if you go back and watch you know say the dark crystal and mm -hmm. you see like the puppetry and you go wow that was amazing there was a time when that seemed completely fluid to me and now i can go back after you know growing up 20 years now watching digital uh, you know uh, cgi yeah. and now that looks different i can look at that wonderful puppetry work and i it doesn't seem as fluid but that's only because it's not as fluid as what can be created in a completely other false medium so who's right. to say what looks more real because yeah. i'm my standard of of my standard of of, of reality has been completely skewed beyond my ability to even tease it out. And I think that's the case yeah. for most of us. Well, so it's important to bear that in mind when looking at these photos that seem obvious fakes, quote unquote. Right. And well, too, you know, the cameras were totally different. You know, completely it's, different. I mean, frame were, rates, all of that shit is totally different. Well, this was so, before even the frame rates. I mean, this was, oh, you yeah. were talking about like film. Yeah, film, like yeah. now we have the cameras on our cell phones are they're not doing anybody favors cuz they're going to show every fucking pore that's why we buy we spent all this money to get all these excellent cameras and then we spend all this money on a filter because we don't want all of that business <laughs> yeah. so like, we spent why? all this money to try to capture reality and then all this extra money to cover up the realities those cameras right. can, can pick the up the camera <laughs> the camera is picking up stuff your naked eye can't see so now people have this whole like misconception of what their face actually looks exactly. like because exactly that's i look like that no you don't but no, you're you looking don't. at that's it through just... like this weird microscopic mm -hmm. thing mm -hmm. and but and so when they have spirit photos now a lot of time it's just you know the a shape or it's right they don't you know, want to make it too detailed yeah but i mean um, even for much the same reason that i don't want a very detailed picture of my face right right exactly <laughs> but also too when you think about it like a legit if it if there's legit photography now of ghosts in a picture mm -hmm. there's you know when and that's always so uh exciting is when you see a series of six pictures that were taken you know less than a second apart and in one of those in the middle of that six there's somebody in there and then they're gone and the rest of it yeah that's pretty powerful stuff yeah. and so but but it's because the cameras can do that now and a lot of times if something is using energy to show up it may not have enough energy to show right. up whereas you know if you if you want to believe that this was true mm -hmm. that these cameras were true if it if it's sitting there for a couple of minutes there might it might be able to create 
And it's, it's also, and that's an important thing, because the way the way digital imaging works, as I understand it, with a with is your phone one? or something, uh, that might be one. I think I'm that came it up later. On the if you just look, Mulmer is spelled M U L M E R. If you put Mulmer Spirit Photography, his images are a little crisper than than some of the others. Okay. Because they were professional portraits and and preserved really well because. He was actually a really excellent chemist, but we'll get to that in a second. Right. But it, it's important to remember, too, I think, that even with digital photography, like, there's not a one-to-one -one ratio between what the camera's taking a picture of and what appears on your screen. Mm -hmm. but what appears on your screen is still an approximation of a lot of things. Your camera, the digital process, is doing a lot of layering and a lot of what's called... Um, uh, aliasing. I'm not quite sure what that means. Uh, someone described it to me once, and I had it for a moment, and then lost it completely, much like my phone. <laughs> and, uh, but it involves, it's not like there's, you know, a little, there's not like a, you know, it, your camera does not work. The, the camera in your phone, a digital camera does not work the way a traditional camera does. Right. So you're not, uh, it's, it's just fascinating. So there's a lot of room for error. There's a lot of room for things that can go wrong, just as they could go wrong in the, in the collidian wet plate process where you can get double exposures or you know if you have a plate that's tampered with beforehand mm -hmm. and so you're going to lay an image it's going to be too on there whatever that can happen and until you're familiar with the technology you don't understand how can that be how right. can this appear there because you think well the camera just snapped a shot and so whatever's in front of it is the only thing that should, should come up but that's not true the camera especially with digital photography is designed to fill in a lot of conceptual blanks mm -hmm. that that are not possible to capture without making certain probabilistic assumptions. Well, and looking at the pictures, now that I've pulled them up, this one, right? That's one, yes. So is this the one with the wife? Uh, I'm not sure which one. Okay, that's, to, uh, no, that's not, that's not the one of the businessman, different one. Different so one. He took a lot of pictures. Okay, to describe it, it's a typical old picture, mm -hmm. the sepia kind of tone of yeah. somebody sitting there uh, not smiling because why would they? They had nothing to smile about. Um, tampons hadn't thing. been invented yet, so nobody was happy. Um, <laughs> we wanted you as you are in your day to day life, and you're not smiling. Yeah, Come no, on, no. It's and the so, 1860s. What there's what's there to fucking smile about? Exactly. So um, in the pictures, though, in the background, like it's usually standing right behind the person or mm -hmm. to the side. It is not like there's another full complete person there. It's definitely a lighter colored uh person not like skin color but just like it's a it's a light uh it's a, it's a ghostly, ghostly image. looking image it's, it's, it's kind of it's kind of like cheesy mist. looking by yeah. our standards now it's like mist has come together but i will say they are there are features specific features mm -hmm. it's not just like mm -hmm. a pareidolia thing where it's like oh that must look like this person's loved one um it's enough to be able to say yes this was somebody i knew yeah. and in one of them um, they're, you know, they'll, they have their hands on the people and you can see through yeah. that space. The fact that, and I, even I, if he was fake, like, it's amazing that he could have faked it back then too. Like, well, and he could have, but yeah. how, but, he most certainly but the did only ways point, they but... knew how to fake it back then he couldn't have been doing because yeah. of, because of the scrutiny he was under by people like Wallace Black or this, uh, LH Hale guy. Right. Um, so it, it's, it's fascinating. And to that end. The judge in the trial was not impressed with the prosecution's case and threw really? it out, dismissed all the charges, well, and um, and he was exonerated. All Alas, right. 
because it had been so public, the damage to his reputation as a spirit photographer was already done and business took a nosedive. The photos of Mary Todd Lincoln and Master Herod, uh, which he did a little later, did little to rekindle interest in his extraordinary services. It eventually came out Mary Todd had been needled by her cousin to sit for Mulmer. She agreed to the apparition. Uh, she agreed the apparition in the photo resembled her late husband only after the same cousin persuaded her. Mm. Seeing the writing on the wall, Mulmer switched gears and focused on more mundane portraiture. He lived more or less comfortably on the proceeds thereafter, downplaying he and his wife's past dalliances with the occult. In fact, he went on to make one very significant contri uh, contribution to modern life as we know it today. See, for all their efforts to expose him, none of his detractors, however versed in photography, ever solved the riddle of Mulmer's phantoms. The prevailing school of thought assumes he discovered some radical new way of fine-tuning the chemical process in the darkroom. The proof of this lay in his method that he later pioneered for transferring images directly onto newsprint. Mm. Twenty years after James Wallace Black ascended uh, to a bird's-eye view of Boston, twenty years after Mulmer left skeptics scratch their heads, the so-called Mulmer process allowed printers to forego having to copy photographic plates by hand, a la wood engraving or illustration. Images could now be reproduced with ease by the thousands. Wow. Essentially, he ushered in the age of the image. Photographs became ubiquitous, emerging as the gold standard of proof. The quip, fix or it didn't happen, became the driving ethos of the news media of the day, and we're still coming to terms with the effect this has on how we see and shape our world. To mm. quote the Smithsonian's breakdown of Mulmer's place in history, even those who hope to prove him a fraud might have appreciated the irony a likely falsifier of images played a pivotal role in the creation of the image-obsessed culture that still defines us. Oh, that's crazy. Uh, interesting, too, like after Mulmer's time, the next wave of spirit photography um, came and went, and there was another photographer whose name I, I, I forget. I really should have written it down for this bit. <laughs> but uh, he had a similar, just like uh, just like B.T. Barnum, a famous humbuggerist, I just love that right. word um, that I made up. Um, P.T. Barnum was his sort of like sworn enemy. I'm going right. to prove him wrong. Um, there seems to be one in every age. There's like the, there's the one that's like the representative of, of the occult side of things mm -hmm. um, that people either think is a charlatan or, the, or a messiah. And right. then there's the other like, you know, usually a stage magician or an actor or someone in the business of illusion who's like, nah, bullshit. And, and for Mulmer, it was P.T. Barnum. For the guy that came later, who in the 20s was a big spirit photographer and, and took a lot of famous photos of mediums like spewing ectoplasm, that kind of stuff. If you, right. you look it up, you'll there's, there's two major spirit photographers. There's Mulmer and a generation or two later, there's this other guy. Okay. Um, his big detractor was Harry Houdini. Of course, yeah. And uh, and one of his big defenders was Sir Arthur Conan Doyle, who was mm. like, you know, no, nah, I think he's real. And he, he wrote an article about him, but, you know, Doyle wasn't always the best at looking at a photograph and being able to tell when he was being tricked because you'll recall the Cottingly fairies. Right, yeah. Um, yeah. But as we, even that case is not as cut and dry as people like to That's assume. True. And then, of course, in later on, you had people like uh, Uri Geller and then the, the amazing James Randi. This was like in the 70s, which mm -hmm. is like there was the major psychic, the spoon bender. Yeah, the spoon bender. And then James Randi, who was like the stage magician that was like, nope. And they just had, it's kind of, so that that kind of trope seems to play out yeah, in every right. age. Um, I think it's fascinating. But that that is kind of the story of the foundations of spirit photography. That's very cool. So, I yeah. I didn't know all of that. I, I'd never seen those pictures before. That's yeah. Really cool. Yeah, the one, of, uh, the one of Mary Todd and Lincoln, you can definitely see that... Um, it it 
if I were Mary Todd, I'd be like, that might be Lincoln. It also might just be someone that's tall and lanky and has a beard. Yeah. Because it's pretty, it's indistinct enough. And I think that's part of, if it was trickery, it was, he was wise to make them indistinct. Right. Um, so that there is a bit of expectation there on the part. But, you know, it, it doesn't mean that, um, and I, and I hate to defend him if he, if he was a charlatan and, and he probably was at least some of the time, but it's possible that he did stumble on a way of recapturing these images of, of actual spirits of the dead, but didn't know quite how he did it. And so had to be like, well, let's fake it a little bit yeah, maybe uh, here he and did there because he's got to make a business before people came over and then had them sit a certain way. Yeah. But and maybe he's, and he could also good. be the equivalent of a YouTuber who's like, man, my, my knitting videos just aren't getting the 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 bites. So, oh, if I put a ghost in one of them, <laughs> then everybody's you know, gonna want me to. Then do everyone was because we're fascinated by it. Yeah, which, absolutely. You know, here we are, 150 years on, and the matter of whether or not ghosts show up in film <laughs> or, yeah. or or in images is still a hotly contested issue. Is it just the issue. cardboard cutout of Ted Danson? You know. <laughs> I remember that the uh -huh. three minute baby thing. My mom and I rented that fucking <laughs> video because uh, a teacher she worked with had told her like you've got to watch it. I saw you it. You still last have night. it? What the video? Someone rented the video specifically to, to watch that, and then they never gave it back. I don't they have it. I've never, it. I've never owned a copy of that. But my my mom. No, they and I... didn't own the copy of it. They just never returned it. Oh, oh, oh! No, that wasn't. I can't me. remember who that was. I used to work for Blockbuster. I had to right, give it back. Yeah. Uh, but no, I was. I guess I was. I don't remember how old I was. I think I was in high school. And my mother had just been told by her, the teacher she taught with at the same high school that, uh, you know, yeah, if you watch it, you can see it. If you it. watch Three Men and a Baby, and, there's um, a ghost. It was really, and here's the thing, and I, I guess I haven't told you this story before, but we watched it in that scene and there in the window is that mm -hmm. shape, which of course now I look at and be like, of fuck, of course that's the cardboard cutout of Ted Danson's character in the film because it comes up later. It's right. it's a it's a very it's a clearly prop that plays a part in the story. Later on, it's just kind of tucked in the curtain in such a way. But if you didn't know that because mm -hmm. you hadn't gotten to that scene where the cardboard cutout is there and mm -hmm. obvious, you see that. And if someone tells you, yeah, that was a boy that fell to his death from that window. My mom and I watched that and she got really emotional. Yeah. Really emotional. And I remember her going, oh, Michael, that just, it can't. It <laughs> can't. And we yeah. must have rewound it and paused it and did everything we could with a VCR, a top fucking loading VCR. Oh, uh, yeah, <laughs> right, those right. things sounded like the doors from Doom opening up. Mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah. uh, and I talked to my mom about it later because, you know, of course it came out later that it was, you know, one, that house wasn't a real house. It was a stage. So yeah. no one died there like yeah. that. And, you know, so no mother watched, came to see it. And so that's my phone. That's my you know, son never happened. Yeah, no, that's and it was real. clearly a cardboard cutout because in later editions, you can see with a little clear with HD. You can right. see like, that's clearly the fucking top hatted figure of Ted Dance in the cardboard cutout. Was, that's in a later scene. I think it was brilliant marketing. It was brilliant marketing. Because and I think, I think, you know, you're right. But I talked to my mom about it and I was like, wow, why did we? Because we bought it. Mm -hmm. Hook, line and sinker. We fell yeah. for it. And my mom said, well, you know, around that time, it was the anniversary of her sister's death. And um, so she was very, yeah. you know, um, she wanted to believe. She didn't yeah. know that she wanted to believe, but she wanted to believe. And of course, wanting to believe doesn't always mean that you're wrong right? Uh, in what you see. But it, again, you know, you, you see what you're predisposed to see. I think skeptics, they have their confirmation biases. Believers mm -hmm. have their confirmation biases. And I think that's why the subject of paranormal phenomenon is so fascinating, because it's a very kind of demilitarized zone between the two. <laughs> yeah, right, right. There's this really great book about drawing. It's called Drawing on the Right Side of the Brain. Mm. And it talks about not drawing what you are seeing. 
but you use the shapes. You draw the shapes. You draw what is in front of you, not the thing. And right. so right. you're not drawing a nose. You're drawing those lines. You're not drawing a yeah. face. You're drawing those lines. And so it's taking it out from seeing what it is you're drawing into um, seeing, breaking it down and seeing it in small pieces. Like the and components. I, the components yeah. of it. And I think that's really good for skepticism is not seeing what you think you're seeing, whether yeah. it's whether that's the skeptics seeing what you want to see or mm -hmm. the, the, you know, susceptible seeing what you want to see in the middle, see what's there and say what that is. And then yeah, and, you can and go see what's there. actually. It's hard. Happening. Our minds just want to build a story every it's time true. they want to build a story. And it, it's, it's how we navigate through reality. Mm -hmm. And, you know, we, there's a narrative for us, even when there's not really a narrative there. I mean, mm -hmm. for us, there's always a beginning, middle and end, but it's, you know, I mean, as any, quantum physicists will tell you that's time's an illusion yeah absolutely <laughs> uh you know it just seems to be a kind of a sort of function of the human brain that we kind of project onto reality just so mm -hmm. that we can digest it and but I, it's just all that shit just fascinates me because i mean like like that's why i, like, I come again to the whole poltergeist question where it's like it's there are people that believe that it's a spirit that's there other people believe no it's it's some unconscious i mean just if you, you take it as a granted that the phenomenon's actually happening right uh then it's either some entity that's out there that's you know independent exists independently of the observers and is doing this shit or it's somehow uh, a, a projection of your own mind that has the ability to kind of break that out there in here barrier and manipulate mm -hmm. the real world and but there are there's an there's been an emerging school of thought that's always on the fringes of course uh, that believes that it's somehow a marriage of the two yeah. that the between in there and out there there's not the stark line in the sand that that most people on either side of that imaginary line think there is mm -hmm. So yeah, again, what fascinates me, what draws me to the paranormal yep. to begin with. So, yeah. so that, that is, good. that's the history of that's awesome. Mulmer. Oh, thank you. Oh, you're welcome. Little break. Then we'll go on to little break. Yes. I have to okay. pee. Great. Okay. It's my turn. Yes. So what have you got this week? My story is about Vic Victoria's street and a few ghost stories from St. John's, Newfoundland and Labrador in Canada. Ooh. We haven't done a lot of Canadian stories. Oh, I don't think we have. And so I wanted to make sure we're giving our Canadian listeners some love. Yes. Uh, okay. So I got the information from History Ghost Bump, Stephen Barnes with exemplar.com. Great articles. Um, exemplar.com. Arcgis.com. Um, and of course, Wikipedia, per usual. So, St. John's is one of the oldest cities in North America and is found in Newfoundland and Labrador on the coast of Canada. St. John's is also said to be the most haunted city in Canada. We should go. Victoria Street in St. John's is only three blocks long, but it is also considered the most haunted street in St. John's. Meaning, Victoria Street <laughs> in St. John's, Newfoundland, and Labrador could be the most haunted street in Canada. Ooh. Now, I know jack shit about Canadian provinces and history because I am from the United States and, and we don't like teaching our children about other countries. <laughs> the majority of our listeners are, the vast majority of our listeners are from the United States. Runner up is the UK, mm -hmm. coming in third place, only slightly behind the UK is our Canadian listeners. 
Well, and we, we love, love you. you all. Uh, so the point is about all of that uh-huh. listenership is um, I'm going to go into a little bit of history of Newfoundland and Labrador, which is very hard for me not to call Labradoodle. So I, it's, it's just why are there why are there provinces named for dogs? They're not the dogs. <laughs> you know this. The dogs. Are I didn't know Labrador was named. I didn't for a province. know. I knew Newfoundlands. Newfies were. Yeah, I didn't know I didn't it was know. Newfoundland and Labrador. Labrador. I didn't, I didn't know, know that that I was, was the name was of it. Yeah, it's Newfoundland and Labrador is the name of the provinces. And huh. Newfoundland. Let me get into it. Sorry. <laughs> this is why I was Please, like, like oh how God, is that a fucking there's a place? Rabbit hole. Yeah. Exactly. So welcome. Let's go to Labradoodle together. Okay. I can't fucking help myself. So this is what's happening. Newfoundland and Labrador are province of Canada. Newfoundland is an island and Labrador is part of mainland Canada. Found to the east of Quebec and above Nova Scotia. Right? Okay. So it is far northeast. Okay. Far northeast from us. We're in Texas. For you Canadians, you're like really fucking far away. Really far away. Like they can see Greenland from their backyard, <laughs> but it is like Greenland is 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 not too terribly far away. And there, uh, the history of Greenland and Nova Scotia, or not Nova Scotia, and and these uh, Labrador and Labradoodle, Labradoodle are connected. <laughs> okay, so there are ten provident provinces in Canada, and this is the newest, having only joined in 1949. It was initially named Newfoundland, having been coined Newfoundland by King Henry VII after John Cabot discovered it in 1497. He was drunk. He was like, it's pronounced Newfoundland. Newfoundland. Uh, The name Labrador is thought to have been coined by the Portuguese explorer named João Fernandes. João? J-O-A-O. João Fernandes. Your guess is as good as mine. Wow. 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 Fernandez. He was a landowner, which in Portuguese is either a Yavrador. I don't know if there are L's, two L's, or a Y in Portuguese. Uh, It's either Yavrador or Lavrador. And people started calling the coast he explored in Greenland the Labrador's land. Labrador was once part of Greenland. Mm. The name was officially changed in 2001 to Newfoundland and Labrador. The people there are from indigenous, French, Irish, and English backgrounds. On the coast of Labrador, the maritime archaic Indians left behind a burial mound that dates back 7,500 years. And this is said to be the oldest known funeral mound in North America. The capital city is the province of St. John's and is found in Newfoundland on the southeastern eastern end. Hmm. So the history there is old, really fucking old. You know, we have, of course... You know, our buildings and things like that are not as old as, you know, the UK, European. Right. You know. They find it cute when Americans are like, this, this cinema is... is over 60 years old. Oh, and they're no, like, oh, so I went to school in a building that was built by Queen Anne. Right. By herself. She Literally herself. Queen Anne. When she was five. Um, <laughs> so the, the, the history of the then. land is is very old as well. It's just as old. Mm. Um, we just don't have as much history because... You know, well, we didn't, yeah. Uh, so, um, from the beginning, St. John's was a prominent harbor known for its fishing in the North Atlantic. Not a surprise. St. John's was a major commercial center, and for this, it became a prime location for attack. 
Many of these attacks mm-hmm. started as early as the mid-1500s. The last attacks came in 1762 when the British recaptured St. John's from the French. Municipal government would be set up in 1888 and the population would rise to 30,000 people. St. John's was incorporated in, in 1888. That's a lot of people. Yeah. St. John's was incorporated in 1921 and today is the financial and commercial center for Newfoundland and Labrador as well as the capital of the province. So when you take that history... And then add a fire in 1817. <laughs> There's always a fire. And then another great fire. See? In 1892, you get ghosts. Lots Whoopsies. and lots of ghosts. Ghosts. Whoopsies. We're like owie, 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 ghosts. Yeah. Ooh, 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 ha, 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 ghosts. <laughs> so. <laughs> That's so insensitive. Ooh, it is us. very insensitive. But I mean, you know. It's, we've all been Are burned. we surprised <laughs> at this point? No. Uh, okay, so we're going to start with a few, with one, uh, with Victoria Street, one of the hauntings on Historian. I can say words. <laughs> one the further of the north we go, the worse you're really going to talk. I know, I'm so cold mentally from being so far north for this story. <laughs> okay, so we have LPSU Hall at 3 Victoria C- Street. <laughs> I told you, I was trying to read something to Michael. I don't even understand what you just said. Wait, yeah. say it again? Um, something about U-Hall. I was trying to read something to Michael earlier. And I said, Brom Stroker's Dracula. And I was like, this is not a good sign. It was the Brom Stroker Award. And I'm yeah. like, oh, I got plenty of those. Right. Uh, so. Hey. This is foretold. Gross. Previously. Okay. L-P-S-U. I'll tell you what it stands for later. Okay. Letter L, letter P, letter S, letter U. That's the okay. name of the building. All right. L-P-S-U. Hall. Hall. That is at Three Victoria Street. Okay, okay now I'm, I'm following you okay. now. This property has been the location of several different groups. So let me sum up. Okay. Because it was like three paragraphs. I was like, this is too fucking long. <laughs> First, it was a church in 1789. Then fire. Then <sighs> another church. Then another fire. <laughs> See, there's a, there's then... A- there's a pattern here. It was. Then Sons of Temperance, which of course was a group of men who pretended they didn't like to drink alcohol. <laughs> After that, <laughs> the Longshoremen's Protective Union, LPSU, Longshoremen's and those Protective men, they Union. They liked alcohol. Yes. I imagine. I don't really know. I would imagine. How do you stay warm up there without drinking? I don't even understand. And finally, <laughs> The Resource Center for the Arts, where it functions as a theater. Now, what that's what it is now. The Resource Center for the Arts, where it functions as a theater and arts center while preserving its heritage, feature, heritage features. So church, fire, church, fire. fire. We don't like alcohol. We like alcohol. Theater. Yes. Gotcha. Okay. Yes. But it's still known as the LPSU. Okay. Uh, Just triples off the yeah, tongue. Yeah, basically... The inside is hella different, but the outside has looked the same for well over 100 years, and it still seems to be referred to, like I said, as LPSU Hall. Okay. There have been numerous reports over the years of unexplained noises, such such as the sound of objects clattering to the floor. Of course, when the sounds are investigated, no cause can be found. People alone or with the only other people present in the building have heard the sound of footsteps moving through the space or climbing the stairs. There have also been dark, shadowy figures seen throughout the hall that appear and disappear right before the eyes of startled witnesses. It's also um, 
was I going to say? Uh, I had a thought and then it left my head because I started reading again. Um, <laughs> that's that's why that reading's dangerous. It's so scary when da- when you read and forget everything you're talking about. Um, so I'll continue. Maybe it'll come back to me. Okay. The hall's most famous ghost, however, is that of a young man seen often sitting in the seats of the main theater during the performance of a show. This is what I was going to say. It does a lot of music shows. Okay. Like a lot of... Like a lot of concerts. Concert type stuff, type yeah. Stuff. Okay. It, from what I gathered. Um, okay, so during the sitting in the main theater during the performance of the show or standing in the wings alongside the stage, the first reported sighting of this spirit occurred during a performance at the hall in 1995. A woman who was watching the show took notice of a young man in the seat next to her, and he appeared to be very much enjoying the show. When the performance was over, she turned to the young man with the intention of saying something to him about the show they had just seen. But as the house lights came up, the man vanished, leaving the woman looking at an empty seat. Ooh. And my first thought is like, wow, so for this guy, death came with season tickets. I guess so. Not a bad deal. Bonus. She later told the story to someone connected to the hall who immediately recognized the man from the description the woman had given. Oh. His name was Fred Gamberg. Fred was a fixture at the LPSU hall and at the time of his death was working there in multiple capacities, doing everything from basic maintenance to putting on shows. He was an integral part of the punk rock and metal scene in St. John's during the latter part of the 1980s and early part of the 1990s and a great lover of the St. John's art scene. Fred was 24 when he drowned on the night of July 10th, 1995. Fred and some friends had gone swimming near Flat Rock, and he slipped off of a cliff and fell into the water. Apparently, he didn't know how to swim, and tragically, no one noticed when he fell. By all accounts, he was much loved and is greatly missed. There's even a mural honoring him on the corner of Duckworth and Prescott, and it is the second mural. They had one that was there for years, and people graffitied over it and everything, and they Mm. um, did a new mural. So it's the second mural to this guy. Uh It's likely uh, no surprise to many who knew him that he still returns to the hall from time to time to enjoy a show or just to check on things. Aww. I know. This, I mean... At least he gets to... I mean, at yeah. least in the afterlife, you know, maybe he died before his time, but while he's yeah. waiting around for whatever, he gets to right. see some cool shows. See, see some shows. So see, at least there's that. Well, and see where the music is now. You know what? Because, yeah, you know, nice. he really started... That's what part of it was, is he really started a lot of the punk scene there and was inspiring to a lot of people. I think that's going to be very fulfilling. And so now it's got to be cool to know that he's still, he sees where that has gone. And, you know, that's pretty cool. Ah, Um, But it is an example, I thought, which we don't get a lot of, of a newer haunting. Yeah. 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 This is. Because he only died, what, the year after I graduated high school? Yeah. This is 20 years ago. It's not, it's not. 25 years ago. It's it's not, not yet. We're just going to round down. It's practically ancient history, but it's newer than some of the, a lot of the Right. Yeah. A lot of them. Well, and you hear all the time people who, our, our disbelievers will they're one of their big things will they'll say is like why are they always from the 17 and 1800s well they're not and this is just exactly furthering that mm-hmm. and also too to have an experience now where somebody sees somebody and describes him mm-hmm. and that person's like i know who you're talking about that's a big deal that's yeah. a really big deal so it's like because hey i knew the person when they were alive yes mm-hmm. yes So Victoria Street is only three blocks, but it is considered the most haunted street in St. John's. And especially for it being so small, it's shocking that it um, 
is so haunted. It seemed mm. to used to be a place where they had meeting houses. So like the Sons of Temperance, like yeah. you know, that kind of, yeah. that's where they it's had like a lot a of meeting center, houses. basically. Yes, yeah. yes. And now some of it are meeting houses. Some of them are actually private residences. Mm. One resident has told the story of how he had been surprised by the ghost of an elderly, elderly woman. This phantom had appeared before him standing on the landing halfway up the stairs of the house. Mm. Other buildings are haunted by mysterious orbs, phantom cigarette smokers, ghostly knockings, and ghosts who open doors and run upstairs. Another private home along this stretch is reported to have been plagued by phantom footsteps, banging doors, and other mild poltergeist activity. And creepiest of all is included in the book Haunted Shores by Dale Jarvis. Dale writes, In 1907, a Newfoundland couple who had been living in the United States returned to St. John's to visit for a few months. They rented a house on Gower Street, the implication being that the house was at the corner of Victoria and Gower. Okay. And paid for their three-month stay in advance. They also don't know which corner it was on, but it was on one of the corners. Okay. Um, they had been, they'd have been better off paid by the week. Let me, let me say that again. <laughs> I actually understood that. Right. They'd have been better off paying by the week on the very first night. Something happened that made them flee the house in terror. According to a report in the St. John's Evening Telegram, and then he quotes, the woman had been startled in the night by a series of blood-curdling screeches. Horrified, she sat up in bed and saw a woman who had been known to her but had died several years before in the same room. As if one ghost was not enough, the house was haunted by two. He continues with the article. The apparition was dragging another woman, also known to be dead, by the hair on her head. Oh, the fuck. woman being dragged was screaming. Oh, oh. The oh. woman who witnessed this unnerving scene was so frightened she fell into a faint. She was revived at daybreak, upon which she and her husband immediately packed up their belongings and left the house, swearing they would never set foot in it again. It was, as it turned out, a costly fright they'd had. The landlord refused to refund their rent money. <sighs> Asshole. Mm-hmm. So. Okay, so this is like it sounds to me like this is the second ghost that we've had in this in this story where it was of someone that someone recognized from when yes. they were alive. Yes, That's and this rare. was in 1907. 1907. Wow, yes. but it no. was a, but she recognized the woman. She recognized both women. Oh, both women. Both okay, women. Wait, two women. Okay, two women because one and one was being dragged. One was yeah. The first woman she had known uh-huh. and recognized was uh, being dragged by the other or was dragging the other woman. I got confused. I've been over this so many times and now it's, it's uh, uh, what a terrifying image though. Um, yes. Yeah, so the first one that she knew was dragging the other woman by her hair mm. and the other woman, she didn't know her as well, but she was also being dragged. Like she, she also knew that she was dead. Okay. So, so the, 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 both the draggy and the dragger were, were, were women that she had known. That she had known. Ooh. Yeah. Yeah. Wow, that's fucked up. Now, there's a little bit of a comment to that. There are archives to the St. John's Evening Telegram, but they had six articles a week for that entire since year. Since Well, yeah, since <laughs> the late 1800s. Um, and I knew it was 1907, but I didn't have time to go through all of them to see how accurate the story is. You didn't have time to go through uh, 300 I newspapers? Didn't. I didn't. My concern with this particular story is that the only reference I seem to be able to find online is from Jarvis's book. Mm. I looked up his exact quotes when searching through the archives, but I came up empty-handed. Now, 
It could be possible that the archives aren't easily searchable. I found them personally to be a fucking nightmare. Uh, a lot of archive systems online, especially yeah. older, are really, they will, and they, even as exhaustive as they appear, a lot of stuff just doesn't make it in. Well, or they're not in the search. Like, they had written down yeah. everything that was on there, but it may not do the search. And right. so, um, right. yeah, it was just, and I didn't have time again to go through all of them, so. Mm. Um, that said, Jarvis is a storyteller and folklorist at the Heritage Foundation of Newfoundland and Labrador. He's very active in ghost history and has written several books on the subject matter. I'm sure he's done quite a bit of research to find stories that aren't normally heard, but I I can't verify it. He's probably been to the actual article. physical archives and yes, seen it, and yeah. that might be where you find it. So right. it just uh, yeah. the physical archives aren't perfectly reflected in what you can find online. Right, and the only thing is that the only thing that has a little red flag for me mm. is that the only reference to it that I can track back and find is his book. So, uh, but however, he's very well respected. Yeah. He so seemed, it could just he, be he found something nobody else had found. And so, I mean, if he's a researcher, he, it's, it's pretty, yes. yeah, I yeah. think I'm, I'm willing to give him the benefit of the doubt. Me too. Me too. But Especially I didn't. if he's with the Heritage Foundation. I mean, like that's a lot. Yeah. There's, and he's got um, like ghost hikes and he does a lot of storytelling and stuff like that too. Yeah. So, um, you know, I, I just, you know, how we are. We want like, to make we want, sure. Yeah. So I we'll just, do diligence. So it's right, good to know. It's right, good right. to know that that's If I sources. can find it, if I find it or somebody else can, we will definitely let you know. Yeah. Um, now, that being said, there is a ton of shit in St. John's. I've got another great story for you next week. It was way too deep to yeah. go into. And oh, maybe okay. another one if that's if that's not long enough. But um, since we don't have time to go get into a whole other story, I thought I'd share a few ghost stories and haunted locations shared online about various areas in St. John's. All right. Okay. And a lot of these I took uh, from Reddit. Oh, yes. Yeah. The first one, I was 17 at the time. My sister was 18 and moved out with her friends to get away from my mom. Anyway, a year had passed and she asked if I would like to sleep over and I said yes. That night, me and my sister and her friends stayed up watching every horror movie we could find. When we designed it was time for bed, we put everything away and went to sleep. Me and my sister shared a room. Her friend was down the hall to us. Sometime that night, I woke up to someone walking down the hall to my sister's room. I thought it was my sister's friend, so I went back to sleep. Again that night, me and my sister woke up to her friend screaming. Me and my sister ran to her friend's room to make sure she was okay. We pushed open the door. My sister's friend is in the corner of the room next to the door, and on her bed was a middle-aged woman sitting in the middle of the bed, just staring at her. Oh. My sister grabbed her friend, and we ran out of the house. Me and my sister waited by the side of the house because we thought she had broken in, and we didn't want her to get away. So my sister's friend went to her friend's house to call the cops. When they came, we told them what happened. The cops went in. They came out a few minutes later and said that no one was in the house. But they did find a note that said, stay out of my house. Oh. <laughs> a few weeks later, my sister and her friend moved out. I asked them once if they would ever go back. They said, over my dead body. <laughs> wow. Rude, ghost. Rude. 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 Okay, wow. this is from therecord.com. St. John's. Okay. Uh, it's an article. Newfoundland actor Steve O'Connell was fresh off one of the haunted hikes he guides through Old St. John's when he gazed on a misty night down one uh, when he gazed on a misty night down one of its spookiest laneways. 
People ask me all the time if I've seen a ghost, he said quietly, recalling a recent encounter with a woman who had taken a photo during the tour. She asked me, can you see something behind you there where you told that story on Willcott's Lane? I said, yeah, it kind of looks like there's a face in the window wearing glasses with a beard. She said, that's my father. He died six weeks ago. Oh, so many ghosts in this in this topic that that were like fresh, I mean, there are fresh so, ghosts. There are so many bars that are haunted. It is just it's everywhere wow. there. So it's it's very cool. Um, it sounds like like St. John's is just kind of like a like a mm-hmm. waiting room for the recently deceased. Yes, yes. Uh, one of Dale Jarvis's favorite stories is about the headless captain of Queens Road. Oh, the story based what a great band name. Oh yeah, that's true. <laughs> for the other ghosts to watch. Yeah, at uh, at the at the show at, at, the, the, at the hall the, at the yeah the Longshoreman's Hall. hall. <laughs> uh, the story dates back hundreds of years and involves a captain who sailed between England and Newfoundland who was friendly with a certain local lady whenever he was in port. Oh well. One night, as he left her home, he was ambushed by the woman's jealous lover and beheaded with a sword. Oh. The ghost is still said to lurk near that spot in search of his unpunished murderer. Ooh. I like me a headless ghost. Mm-hmm. I like me a headless good stuff, ghost. right? From Reddit. Uh, Evenings and Weekends says... <laughs> I wanted to get these names in there because they were making me laugh. Um... <laughs> A couple of years back, a couple pals and I decided to walk out to Fort Amherst. It was late at night, and we were a little baked and looking for something (laughs) to do. All I knew about it was that it was this old castle of sorts. We were getting near it, walking up the road, gabbing. We pass a streetlight, and just as we pass it, the bulb goes out. That happened when we were in Richmond, too, on that ghost tour. Like Oh, yeah. You told me about that. I notice, but don't mention it. We get to a second light, and just as we pass that one, it, too, goes out. All three of us nervously laugh about it this time. Like, shit, that was creepy, right? <laughs> I'm not wrong about that. That was creepy. The third light is approaching. We all agree that if that one goes out, we turn the fuck around and go back. Sure enough, as soon as we pass the pole, <laughs> the bulb goes out. That was enough for us. One of them had powers. That's right? all that That's is. all it was. Uh, that was enough for us. We went home out of it. Fort Amherst is clearly haunted. Um, new townie mom my friend rented a house in Fleming that was definite on Fleming which is a road in Mm -hmm. St. John's that was definitely haunted especially the upstairs they would hear things in the hall see things go by out of the corner of their eye two separate people felt someone lie behind them in bed and the cat would stare at nothing and get super freaked out they found a chest in a crawl space in the attic with a bunch of weird personal effects in it, just like oh. random stuff. Oh, uh, paper. Like, it was paperwork. I followed like the thread a little bit. Like it was paperwork a ball and gag like. And... No, <laughs> no, it was more like paperwork and, and like legal reference type stuff. Oh, okay, so maybe like... some photos, but just hmm. like some personal effects. So that was a good one. Um, Clardio, Clardio. I don't know. It's a, it's a name. <laughs> I made this thread because I had an experience the other night. My house was built in 1958, center of the city, not super old. My girlfriend has told me of her experiences with moving objects and hearing a young boy's voice in the house, but never believed her. We get home around 10.30 Wednesday night. Ready to settle down for the day, I go to the bedroom to change into comfier clothes. As I start stripping down, I feel two fingers between my back and my boxer briefs, and they give a little playful tug-tug. 
Obviously, I think it's the missus wanting to halves on a youngster. A bye. I don't know what that means, but I love it. <laughs> so I smirk and keep getting undressed. I'm down to only my boxers when I feel yet another playful tug tug at the back of my waistband. I whip around with the words, you know what? Only to be surprised by no one there. My immediate response was, what the fuck? And was it was only greeted by my girlfriend signing out from the living room asking what was wrong. Oh, creepy. So I don't like when they try to undress you. I know. It's very rude. This is our last story, and I save the best for last. I am not sure 100% if this is from St. John's. I feel like it is because that was the thread. Okay. But... Well, so good. I had to send it. Let's do it. Let's do it. it. Okay. It's from Mike Judge Dredd, which is a fantastic (laughs) name. (laughs) Not my story, but my grandfather's rest in peace. So many a year ago, the quickest way across the bay was a rope system with a wooden platform. You pull the rope, it drags the raft towards one end, and then you can hop on and go back across. Pretty ingenious. So the year's 1940, and my grandfather is 12. He'd been jealous because his older brother was given the Nazis' hell in Monte Cassino, so he got a job gutting fish at the storehouse across the harbor. He's working the third shift, and it's a foggy night. He boards the raft for work and gets ready to pull. Over his shoulder, he hears a distinctly male cough and the creaking and settling of someone stepping on the raft. No big deal, but he is probably drunk as fuck, and my grandfather, being 12, was too scared to interact with the man on board. So my grandfather keeps pulling and pulling. At some point crossing, he hears the man sigh, the creaking again of raft boards, and the sound of a man leaping overboard. Oh. My grandfather immediately drops the rope and tries to find the guy. Here's the fucked up part. There are no ripples in the water. There's no water splashed into the raft. The seat isn't even warm. So my grandfather tries not to think about it and goes in to his shift of gutting fish. Not an hour into the shift, one of the evening shift guys rushes into the room, pale as a fucking ghost. He needs four stout men right the fuck now. My grandfather, at age 12, couldn't be described as stout. The men go, another hour passes, and the entire shift is watching them pull across on the raft. Wrapped in the men's sweaters was a corpse. The police made their first trip ever to the community to investigate. It was open and shut. The man, who had been a heavy drinker, tried to shuttle himself on the homemade ferry. At some point, evidenced by the thick ligature marks on his chest and legs, he managed to wrap himself in the ropes, fall overboard, and drowned violently just inches below the water. Based on the level of bloating and the amount of flesh left on his face, and then it goes into detail that I'm not going to go into, uh, says the officer, this man has been dead for three days. Oh. Minimum. Oh, oh. My grandfather walked off the line, vomited in the bushes, and walked the long way home. Ooh, shit. Yeah. Damn. Another yeah. ghost of a recently dead person. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Ooh. Right? Oh, Canada. Accident. I did not plan on it being that kind of a theme, but here we are. Um, so, yeah, <laughs> I have another really good story for Ooh, next time that I really want to be able to dig into. Okay. And, um, I didn't have time to dig into them all, but... Can you give us a hint, a little teasing? Well, it's from St. John's, and it has to do with a court case. Okay. Yeah. I love it when the ghost story involves a court case. Yes. It just fascinates me when they make it in the law books. Yeah, yeah. It's, uh, 
it's pretty good. It's pretty good. Oh, yeah. sweet. So we should, we'll get to that. But Hell yeah. Yeah, so. Sweet. Well, thank I you very much, I did not Tim. expect to find good. as much stuff. So thanks, Canada. Great. I want to go to St. John's now. I know. It's just really far away. Not that, I mean. It's a thousand mi- million miles and miles and miles of times 30,000 away. <laughs> We're not walking. I don't do maths. It's not my thing. <laughs> or long trips, apparently. Man, I wonder what that flight would be. I, bet, I doubt they have a direct. I don't know. I, I don't know. Probably, probably five, six hour flight. I wonder if there's a convention there. That'd be fun to go. Ooh, there should be a convention there. And there then we could go. Be. We could go. <laughs> there's conventions everywhere. <sighs> well, this anyway. is, I'm very, I'm very proud of this episode. I am too. Go on both of very us. Very exciting. Episode, this is 51. 51, 51 right? Yeah. Wow. Yep. And we've got, let's see, when this airs. We will have, I'm looking at my calendar, a week, I think. Just a week shy of being the year anniversary. Yeah, so that will be Tuesdays the 1st, and that's when our Patreon will go live. Yes! Uh, We're still cooking up ideas. That's right. Uh, the Patreon, so we're getting on that. Don't worry. Still open to some suggestions from yes. you guys. Tier ideas, um, tier levels. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We were just going to do one, but we've had requests for more than one. So yeah. we're looking at, at those options. Yeah. yeah so, so awesome. Thank you guys again for all of your support and yes. encouragement and our listenings and telling your friends and giving us those five-star reviews. We really, really appreciate it. Thank you for all the ghosts that listen to this podcast yeah. and decide to make their presence known to I listeners because it just really, makes us feel like that's you really helping with, with our marketing angle. It's, it really, yeah. really helps us out. Thank you. We never even considered it, and here we are now. <laughs> um, also, you can, of course, check us out on Instagram mm-hmm. at Ghoul Intentions. On Twitter, we are Ghoul Intent. Um, and the website, of course, is goalintentions.com, and you can send us your stories there. Please do. Um, so, and that's it, I guess. Yeah. 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 All right. Thank well, then, guys. remember it's, it's okay, okay to sleep, sleep with the, the lights, lights on. on.